So in verse 10, we're told that two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, of course, as I mentioned before the reading, this is a very well-known passage of Scripture. It's obvious that it's designed to trouble us or to challenge us. But um, one of the problems with the parable is that it doesn't really trouble or challenge anybody the way in which it should. In fact, it's a strange thing that if you're unconverted, it's possible that there's a a strange kind of comfort that you draw from a parable like this. And um, you get that comfort whether you look at the Pharisee or the tax collector. If you look at the Pharisee, well, the message that seems to come across is that God doesn't really like people who are too religious or people who observe rules of any kind in their religious life, and you get a certain kind of encouragement from that. And then again, if you look at the tax collector, well, it seems to give the idea that you can be uh, an out-and-out sinner, really, but as long as you don't think too much of yourself, and as long as you're prepared to acknowledge the fact that you are indeed a sinner, well, that God doesn't really mind. So, whether you look at the Pharisee or the tax collector, there's a strange kind of comfort. God doesn't want people to be too religious. And as long as I feel a bit sorry for what I do, for what I do, then God is really prepared to accept me as I am. And in a strange kind of way, you can end up offering the Pharisee's prayer yourself. You can say, well... I thank God that I'm not like these religious people who put on a performance in the church all the time. Uh, I thank God that I'm a, a bit more honest and straightforward and I've got my blemishes and my failings. I confess them, perhaps even every night. And God is far more likely to accept me on the basis of this parable than he is to accept those people who make a performance of going to church week by week. It's quite strange how the devil can use our own sinful psychology to twist a parable to make it mean something entirely different, really, from what the Lord meant it to mean. And I suppose that raises the question that's really quite fundamental in all this, and that is, do we really understand this parable? Although we've heard it often enough, and read it often enough, do we really understand it. What is it that the Lord is speaking about? To whom is he addressing it? What's the problem? And uh, what is the solution to it? These are all very important questions. Now, the answer, as always, with a parable lies in the context. The most important thing in connection with this one is simply to notice who it's spoken to. Once, Once we're there, we begin to see the passage in a wider sense than I suppose we've understood it before, because in verse 9, it's not simply addressed to the Pharisees. The, the example that he highlights is an example of a Pharisee, but it's spoken to those, verse 9, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and they despised others. Obviously on the basis that they weren't righteous. So they trusted in themselves that they were righteous or if you like acceptable to God, pleasing to God and they looked down upon other people as not being acceptable or not pleasing to God. Now you would think, I suppose, that the only people who could think themselves to be acceptable to God must be religious people like the Pharisee. But it's quite possible for all kinds of people uh, to believe in God and to believe that they themselves are acceptable before God. Whether they go to church or not, whether they attend church or not is absolutely unknown point, believe it or not. You would say, well, surely a religious person goes to church. Not necessarily. They may believe in God and they may believe that the life that they live is justifiable before God, even if it's got sins attached to it. It is a life that can broadly be justified and therefore they are righteous. And they despise other people, perhaps even church-going people that they are not as they are themselves. In other words, self-righteousness is something you can find anywhere um, in lots of different kinds of people. In fact, if, if you were to think of um, people who think that there is a God and that their lives are acceptable before God, you're, you're talking about a very large number of people. There's even a very large number of people in, in Scotland today who have gone to church. It's reckoned to be about three times the number that go to football matches on Saturday. Uh, that gets a lot of coverage in the papers and every single night on your news bulletins. Church attendance obviously doesn't. But there are at least three times that number who go to church, never mind the number who don't, but think themselves righteous before God. Because for one reason or another, they don't need to go to church to be righteous before God. So if this parable is addressed to those who think themselves to be righteous, it's far more than Pharisees. Far, far more than Pharisees. Now, of course, you do find people who think themselves righteous inside the church. That obviously stands to reason. It's not always the people you expect. You know, if you were to ask somebody, well, Who's likely to be a Pharisee there? You know, they would make their own caricature of what that person is like. That person would be very regular in church. They would be on time. They would be well-dressed. They would be quite strict and so on. That's liable to be the Pharisee. But the person who comes in, you know, and is casually dressed and quite cool and so on, that person is not likely to be the Pharisee. But lo and behold, if... The curtains were drawn aside and you got into their hearts. That's the person who's cool and casual saying, well, I'm thankful I'm not like one of these stuffed shirts there. Coming in here every time and well-dressed and so on. That's an outward performance. I thank God that I'm not like one of them. So your Pharisee is in your jeans and your T-shirt. Whereas the true man of God is dressed as you expect the Pharisee to to watch these things. You've got your caricature of what the Pharisee is like. 
But a self-righteous man or woman is a self-righteous man or woman. They are convinced that in themselves they can pass muster with God. And of course, like I said, you find these people outside the church. Uh, if, if you met someone, you know, who doesn't go, let's say you meet them, they don't go to church, but you ask them, do you believe in God? And they say to you, yes, oh, I believe in God. And you say to them, do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? They say, well, yes, I expect to go to heaven when I die. On what basis? Well, they'll give a, a, a series of answers, but when you strip them, or when you boil these answers down to their essence, there's something like, well, I believe that, you know, my life is fine. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Most people do think that they're good themselves. Maybe when we're in the company of Christian people for a long time, we, we tend to get used to hearing one another's complaints about what we are in ourselves because we have seen what we are in ourselves. But by and large, that's not how people think. They think their lives pass muster with God. They think they are acceptable. And again, you know, they will sometimes... Um, You'll find them even where you really wouldn't expect them to be. You find a person maybe who's uh, quite far away. Things have gone wrong, things have gone bad, but again you strip away the layers and they say things like, Oh no, uh, I, I, I'm not going to church. Um, but, you know, my life's an open book, you know, and I'm, I'm living like this and, well, maybe it's not a great life, but, you know, I believe that God's with me and that God will have mercy upon me. Because, well, because what? Because they're righteous in themselves. They're justified. God will have mercy upon them. There's something about their life that gets them pass marks. And it's amazing how deeply woven this is in the human heart. It's a result of the fall that we can't see our own sickness. It's bad enough to be sinful. It's worse that we can't see our own sin. That in fact we think we're fine. Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous before God. Now, all that really goes to show is just the deceitfulness of the human heart and the importance of knowing. And we all need to know this even tonight, who and what we really are. We need to know whether we are actually saved or not. And we need to know the exact relationship between faith and good works. Because to be mistaken about that is to be hell-bound rather than heaven-bound. The name, of course, for being righteous in yourself is self-righteous. Self-righteous. Again, you've got your image of what a self-righteous person is like. And it's not you, because you are a good person. And you'll notice again that a self-righteous person despises others because they don't live up to the standard by which you live yourself and there are ways in which you do feel that you are better than others. Now a true Christian let me say right away is, is, is very different from that because to go right to the heart of what a Christian is, a Christian has got rid of self-righteousness in every shape or form 
the Christian has come to recognise that their lives are not justifiable. Uh, a Christian is a person, man or woman, who realises that they cannot get to heaven as they are. That their lives, in other words, can't be justified. Um, if, if you put their good and their bad in a scale, I mean, it's just going to plonk down to the floor on the bad side. In fact, they've come to the conclusion that in reality there's nothing good in them at all. And therefore, they have fled to Christ. And they have fled to Christ for a righteousness. A righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ. Now this righteousness was, think of it as a garment for a second. This garment was woven by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was woven by him in his life and in his death. By living an obedient life for us and by dying and enduring the penalty of death that we deserved, he made a fabric of righteousness. And if you trust him, you're clothed with that. He took your sin and your shame. He wore that garment. We thought of that recently. He, he appeared filthy before God clothed with your sins that were imputed to him, so that you could wear the garment of righteousness that he wore. So self-righteousness is out the window, and you have a righteousness from God. And of course, the thing that you're thankful for, I mean, this Pharisee does use the word thanks, we'll come to that in a moment, but what you're thankful for is what Christ has done for you, and what he is gradually doing in you as well, conforming you to his own image and likeness. By his spirit, he enables you to love the Lord, to love his people, and to serve. Now, it's to understand the difference between self-righteousness and true righteousness that Christ tells this particular parable here. And it's effectively a snapshot of two men in prayer. That's all it is. I mean... These two men are living their own lives. One is a Pharisee, he's a religious person. He is regularly performing religious duties. So everyone's liable to think that he must be fine. The other person is a tax collector. That's his occupation. Now, he's not collecting taxes for the Jews. He's not collecting the temple tax for the maintenance of the temple either. So he's not collecting civil Jewish taxes Neither is he collecting religious taxes. He is a tax collector for Rome. And they weren't popular people. Uh, to put it mildly, they weren't popular people. But the Lord takes a snapshot of these two men. And everybody's got their ideas of how they both stand before God. And they're both appearing in church. And they're both well known in the community. Pharisee would certainly be, but so would the tax collector. <coughs> He'd absolutely be well known in the community as well and wouldn't be too popular. Like ourselves, they're both in church. Let's look at what they do and what they say. Let's take first uh, the Pharisee. Now, uh, I often feel in connection with the Pharisees that I need to point out that they they weren't all bad. 
to have the name of a Pharisee, well, the, the, the word means uh, separate ones. And uh, the reason they originally formed about a hundred years before our Lord's birth uh, was to do with the fact that they felt that the judgments of God that were coming upon them successively at the hands of other nations and empires um, was due to the fact that, that they had moved away from the word of God. That was right. That they had moved away from the law of God as given by Moses, which was correct. And you'll find that amongst these early Pharisees there would have been many good people. Even in the Lord's day, although the, the mass of them had become leavened with something very bad, there were still good people amongst them. What really happened with the Pharisees is something that can happen to anybody if self-righteousness comes in. What happened to them was that they began to hedge around the law of Moses with their own laws. Gradually these laws became more important than the laws of Moses themselves. And gradually again keeping these laws meant that God was pleased with you. So they moved imperceptibly, little by little, from realizing the importance of obedience to putting importance instead of obedience instead of faith. And obedience to their own laws gradually became more important than obedience to the law of God. All that is far more subtle than any of us realize it is. Sometimes you think, well, who, who in their right minds could be a Pharisee? Well, <coughs> If you know yourself, really, it's quite easy to understand how you could slip into that. And let me say that although you're no longer a Pharisee as a Christian, the Pharisee lives in you and he's always ready to lift up his head and make himself known. So that's the Pharisee. They ended up in a condition like this man here where they would, as Jesus said, strain nuts but swallow camels. In other words, they would tithe uh, herbs, mint, cumin, things like that, which the Lord never said to tithe, but, but they were that righteous that they would take these little garden herbs and they would tithe them. And the Lord said, you are omitting the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, righteousness. You're good at religious details and performances, but your lives are actually not up to the mark at all. You will strain the little gnats, but you will swallow camels. Now let's look first at what this man does. The first thing he does that the Lord draws attention to is that he stands near. He stands near. And that meant, well, that's to be understood. It's implicit because the tax collector stood afar off in verse 13. The implication is that the, tax, that the Pharisee didn't need to. So he draws near. In other words, he draws near to the presence of God. He comes as far as he can go right into God's presence. Now, what that tells us is that this man is confident. He's confident. This Pharisee is not doubting his own standing. I'm sure as a Christian you often doubt your own standing. Uh, this man doesn't do that. He, he believes he belongs to the elect of God. If, if you were going to say to him, why do you think you belong to the elect of God? You, 
The, the first answer that he would give you is because, well, it belonged to the chosen people. I'm a child of Abraham. And Abraham's descendants were blessed. And I'm simply blessed just by being born in that line. And I'm grateful to be born in that line. In my own way, at least, I'm grateful to be born in that line. If you speak to me about regeneration or being born again, well, I, I don't need to be born again. Maybe you do, but I've been born well first time around. I've been born in the right church. I've been born to the right people. I'm glad who my ancestors are. I'm elect and I am chosen. So it's no surprise, I suppose, that this man, when he prays, looks up. By contrast, we're told that the tax collector, when he prays, doesn't look up at all. But this man looks up. Again, it's a sign of his confidence. And again, he's got no need to beat his breast. We're told the tax collector did, but this man doesn't need to. He doesn't need to beat his breast because his sins are not a huge problem to him, really. He's the kind of person who would say what people say and what maybe you say. Well, okay, I am a sinner. None of us are perfect. I'm not perfect. He would say that. He, he, he would acknowledge that there's imperfections in his life, but he tithes his mint and his cumin and his herbs. And as he says elsewhere, he fasts twice in the week and so on. So he's quite confident before God. And so much of it is rooted in circumstance and birth. Now again, we think that kind of thing is dead. We think everybody is too wise, uh, too enlightened to make a big deal of who you were born to or what family you were born in or what church you were raised in. But lo and behold, when you dig around people, it's amazing how much this matters. The fact that you are a godly grandmother. Imagine thinking you can get to heaven on the back of that. You were born in, let's not say any other church. It's easy for me to say there are Kirk people who say, oh, we were born and raised in the Church of Scotland. Or there are Roman Catholics and they say, well, we belong to the true mother, mother church, which has a history going years and years back. <coughs> But of course people can all say the same about being common actors. And they think, well, we were born to have known people like that. They were born to a covenanting family. And uh, we are the people. You are baptised. So God will let you in. It's amazing how many ways the devil finds of saying to you that you'll be let in. That God will let you in. Amazing. So that's what the man does. But notice especially what he prays, because after all, it is the Pharisee's prayer. He says one word that's good, and that is, he gives God thanks. The Pharisee stood in verse 11 and prayed thus with himself and said, God, I thank you. Now that's a good start because I'll have to take that off because one end of it has gone off. Just excuse me for a second. Um, he gives God thanks. I suppose that's a good thing in his prayer in itself. I mean, our prayers lack thankfulness a lot. I think 
Perhaps maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but very often we are unthankful compared to how we should be. But although he says the word thanks and he starts with thanks, I thank you, it's all downhill from there. What does he give thanks for? Well, that I'm not like other men. That's an interesting thing. Can you say that in a good sense? Well, sometimes you can. Sometimes you can. I remember a, a minister many years ago who, who was sent somewhere to preach that was extremely dark and unresponsive to the gospel. And he came back and he said, I nearly prayed the Pharisees' prayer, he said, because I was thankful that I was not like those men. But there's another sense. You know, we often quote uh, John Newton, uh, who seeing somebody far away from the Lord said, There but for the grace of God go I. When you think about it, that's not a million miles in terms of words anyway, from these words here. Not a million miles away. It can be right sometimes to say, well, I'm thankful that I'm not like that. Unbelieving or um, blasphemous or anything of that kind. And there's a sense in which the Christian can say these words, but it's not this sense. It's not this sense at all. Notice what the man highlights. He highlights what he's confident he doesn't do himself. He gives God thanks that he is not, well, this is how he characterizes others. They are all extortioners, unjust, they're adulterers, or perhaps even like this tax collector. Now, you would think that if he really knew himself, he wouldn't be so quick to exclude himself from that category or any of these categories as Paul says in the letter to the Romans you who say do not steal do you steal yourself you who say do not commit adultery he says do you commit adultery yourself do not steal do you rob God we thought of that recently is it possible that you rob God Malachi said that to the people. The people said, well, how do we rob God? And Malachi said, in your tithes and in your offerings, you keep back what belongs to God. But he didn't see that himself. Are you sure that you never commit adultery? The Lord Jesus Christ tells us that for a man to look at a woman, or we could invert that, for a woman to look at a man with a lustful look, is already committing adultery in the heart. You who say who don't murder, well, the Lord tells us that to hate our brother is to commit the sin of murder. Like I said before, maybe not first degree murder, but murder nonetheless. Murder nonetheless. We're slow to take these labels to ourselves. This Pharisee has no uh, idea that these things apply to himself at all. In fact, it was to the Pharisees that the Lord gave or it was in rebuke of the Pharisees that, that the Lord gave those lessons anyway concerning what adultery really is and what murder really is and so on. And, and we think our lives are acceptable to God. We think that unbalance will get into heaven. We'll th we, we think that we're basically good people. Are we good people? 
We are absolutely not good people. Our lives are foul and festering in the sight of God, and that's the reality of it. It's just that this man hasn't seen it. Thank God that you're not in the number that haven't seen it. That's a fair enough thing for you to say. And thank God if you have seen it. You'll notice that he's even noticed the tax collector in his prayer. I thank you that I'm not even as this man here. It takes a strange comfort from that. All self-righteous people do. All self-righteous people are always interested in comparing themselves with that one there and that one there. So the Lord paints these pictures um, with careful brush strokes and he just adds in the tax collector here as much as to say, well, he's noticed who's nearby in the temple. He's noticed who's praying and he says, well, I'm thankful that I haven't got his job. I'm thankful that I'm not living the life that he's living he gets a comfort from that. Do you get a comfort that you're better than somebody else? It's, suppose you're better in your own eyes than everybody in your neighborhood. So what? Do you think that makes you better before God? Notice that although he says he doesn't do these things, you'll notice the things that he highlights that he does. He says he fasts twice in the week and he gives a tenth of all that he acquires. Acquire is a better word than possess there. It's a, by far a better translation. If you give a tenth of all you possess, it means that you keep giving a tenth. Suppose you have ten pounds, you give a pound, then you have to give a tenth of that and tenth of that. The word is acquire. All that he acquires, he gives a tenth of it. But nobody asked him for his garden herbs. Neither actually did anyone ask him to fast twice in a week. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong there. Although the Word of God doesn't command us to fast twice in the week, if it is your practice to fast twice in the week, good and well. You're free to do so. And there's nothing to say that that's a, a wrong practice, providing it's for the right reasons. And providing you don't go around telling everybody that you do it. I would imagine this uh, Pharisee's prayer was audible, that it could be heard, and um, I suppose he'd like people to know that he fasted twice in the week. It's not really a good idea to be telling people when you fast or how often you pray. After all, when the Lord told us to fast in our own private fasting, he told us to put, to put on the usual oils or perfumes and to appear as we normally would before people so that men would not know that we were fasting. The same is true of prayer life. He says, don't do your private prayer life in public, but go into your closet where it's you and God, and the Father who sees in secret, he says, shall reward you openly. Don't blow a trumpet when you fast. Don't blow a trumpet when you pray. Now, of course, we, we always have to recognize what the Lord is speaking about and why He's not referring there to a legitimate public fast, which can be held in a church where everybody knows that everybody's fasting. For example, the Thursday of a communion used at some point to be a fast day. I don't know when it ceased to be that, but there was a time, obviously, when people genuinely fasted. So everybody knows everybody's fasting because it is publicly appointed by the lawful Kirk session. Sometimes our government, <laughs> in the past, shall we say, 
The, the king at the time of war called for a fast and a national day of humiliation, so everybody knows their fast. But the Lord's talking about your private prayer life. Keep it private. Your private fasting, keep it fasting. It's against the spirit of the whole thing to, to make it obvious. To be, suppose you go round and you see somebody you say, and you want them to eat, oh no, I'm fasting today. There's another way of refusing it without saying that. But that's what he highlights this night. I'm not a sinner. In fact, I'm very, very religious. I'm not an adulterer. I am not a murderer. And I'm not like the tax collector. But I do fast twice a week. And I do give a tenth of all that I possess. You know, in a funny way, he's probably conscious that he's doing more than God asked for. And that gives some spiritual brownie points, does it not? You never asked me to fast twice in a week, but I do. You never asked me to tithe garden herbs, but I do. And of course, this takes you into the realm of uh, supererogatory actions and uh, the Roman Catholic idea of merit. You see, if you build up merit in one area, it can cover another. That's why you sometimes find that very religious people can sometimes be very immoral people. Because their religion covers their morality. That's a dangerous place to be. A really, really dangerous place to be where your religion covers your immorality. Of course, it doesn't. His prayer is all about himself, really, is it not? But there's no sense of need in it. No sense of sin in it. There's no confession of failure. He's not coming short of the law of God. There's not a word about how dependent he is upon God every day for every good thing. There's no word of gratitude for his clothes or the gifts that God gave him or anything like that. There's not a shred of humility. There's not a shred of humility in this prayer, is there? I mean, at one level, you see, when you read the words cold, they're okay. It's when you go behind them and when you look at what isn't there that you see what's wrong. And although he came near to God, in reality, he's far, far away. That's what Isaiah spoke of when he spoke about the people who come near to me with their lips, he says, but their hearts are far away. Well, I wonder if that could be any of ourselves tonight. You know, we approach him with our lips. We sing his praise, but our hearts are far, far distant. But still, we somehow justify ourselves. And we're better than other people. And God will bring us over the line. Psalm 138 tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I think it's an interesting thought that the Lord tells us that the Pharisee prays with himself. He prayed thus with himself. What do you think that means? Why doesn't the Lord say that the Pharisee prayed to God? Because after all, he addressed God. He said, God, I thank you that I am not as other men. Oh, but Jesus said that he prayed with himself. Possibly means that he's his own God, really. I think it certainly means that even if he's addressing his prayer to God, God's not listening. God's not listening. 
God's hearing him all right, but God's not listening. It's not a prayer of faith, and God doesn't receive a prayer that's not a prayer of faith. And you'd better believe that, and I'd better believe it too, that God does not receive a prayer that is not a prayer of faith. No humility, no prayer. No sense of need and dependence, no prayer. This man, in reality, hasn't got a clue, although he appears to know it all. And the sad thing is that so many people in the temple that day who saw him standing there near the presence of God would say, well, it's a good man. Jesus tells us that he went home not justified. Not justified. Not justified in the eyes of God. <clears throat> but on the other hand, you have the tax collector. And this poor man is written off just because of his job. Now it's an interesting thing, you see, but there is no evidence that to be a tax collector was to be sinful. If there was, this would change certainly my understanding of the parable. But there's no evidence for that. When certainly it was viewed, you see, because technically they, they were, um, there was another country exercising rule over them, they viewed it as an occupation, but it was the Roman authorities that were over them, and you notice that the Lord himself accepted that and never incited the people to rebellion. But, but to be in a position of receiving tax for the controlling government was not in itself a sinful duty. Now, it is a fact that people in the post were not popular amongst the common people. You can imagine that. They were not popular. And it's also a fact that a lot of them were out for themselves and uh, they could fleece the people. Zacchaeus was an example of those. You'll remember Zacchaeus who went up onto the tree so that he could see. He was a, a little man and he went up onto the tree so that he could see the Lord better. The Lord, of course, called him down and he said, I must eat at your house today, which would have staggered people. But, of course, when the Lord went into his house, Zacchaeus is immediately repentant. And... Uh, he says, if I have taken, he says, I will restore it fourfold. Um, because he has taken. He has taken. He knows that himself. That, that he has abused his position. But he, he doesn't say, I'm going to stop being a tax collector. He doesn't say that. What he does say is, I'm going to be a godly tax collector. And everything I've done wrong, he says, I've put right. Because that's what repentance does. You know, when repentance comes into your heart, you see yourself as a sinner and you, you, you just want to put everything right. And even when you're converted first time, if you're conscious that there are people that you've really wronged, you know, you, you can't wait really to speak to them and put it right. These are all marks of grace. Marks of grace. But the fact is that the people wouldn't like to even see them in the temple. That's the bottom line. And that's a sad comment really on the way things had gone. We'd rather the tax collector out there rather than in here. What does he do and what does he say? Well, you notice what he does, first of all, is he stands afar off. Uh, the presence of God, you'll remember, is at the heart of the sanctuary, in the Holy of Holies. He stands afar off. 
And of course, you know as well as I do that the reason he stands afar off is not because he doesn't want to be near God, it's that he doesn't feel he can. He, doesn't, he just doesn't deserve it. Why? Because he knows himself, this man. He knows himself. It's the same expression that Peter used, in essence, spiritually, when he said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. When he knew who he was standing in front of him, Depart from me, O Lord, you are holy. You are holy, and I am a sinful man. Um, what a mark of grace that is. Did Peter want Christ to go away? Absolutely not at all. Absolutely not at all. But he was actually afraid of his own sin in the presence of a holy God. Um, depart from me, but please don't. But that's what's reflected here in this man. He stands at a distance. He is not worthy. Now that's just that. That's one of the beautiful first marks of a soul in which the Spirit of God is working. One of the first graces that appears is humility, an acknowledgement of personal uncleanness and the holiness of God. Where you see that, it's beautiful to see. It's a real mark of a Christian. No wonder when the Roman centurion, um, who had a sick servant, we looked at that incident a few months back now, but you remember that the Lord was coming into his house to heal him. And when the Roman centurion heard that the Lord was coming to his house, he rushed out, you remember, and he said, Don't, he says, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Please just speak, and my servant will be healed. Now, <clears throat> certainly, that showed great faith in the Lord's power that the mere act of speaking was able to affect a healing. No need for a hand to touch or anything of that kind. Speak and it will be done. But it also showed real humility which accompanies that faith. Please don't come under my roof. My roof is so unclean and you are so holy. Just stay outside and speak the word and it shall be done. It's no wonder the Lord turned round to Israel, including the Pharisees who were there in company, and said, I have not found faith like this in the whole of Israel. He says, I have not found faith like this in the whole of Israel. It's no accident that great faith was married to real lowliness and humility. A Christian knows his sin. He knows he's a sinner in the presence of a holy God. So he stands afar off. He also looks down. Same reason. The Pharisee looked up, no problem. There's a clear acceptance, you see, but he just looks down because that's how he sees himself. And of course, he beats his breast. And why does he beat his breast? Because he doesn't just know he's a sinner, which is really important, but he actually feels it. Do we feel our sins when we confess them? Are we grieved at what we said? Are we grieved at what we did? And as I mentioned last Sabbath, are we grieved at what we didn't say? And are we grieved at what we didn't do? He was grieved. And that's what the Lord means by highlighting this. He, Beats his breast, he's conscious of it. 
My sins, Lord, my sins, they're crippling me. And I'm so conscious of it. And of course, as he draws near to God in prayer, he's ever more conscious of it. That's what he does. And what does he say? Well, he's just got a simple request, doesn't he? We're very familiar with it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know if you noticed that the Pharisee didn't ask for anything. Make of that what you will, but he just didn't ask for anything. This man has only one request. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the Greek language it is, have mercy on me, the sinner. Now, you won't perhaps expect it to appear like that. What does it convey to you? Have mercy on me, the sinner. Well, what it conveys to me is that as far as he's concerned, he's the only sinner around. Which is interesting because the Pharisee noticed him and compared himself with him. But he's not noticing anybody, comparing himself with anybody. He's comparing himself with God and the holiness of his character and the holiness of his law. And as far as that's concerned, he says, I'm a sinner. And I'm a chief of sinners too. Is that how you feel? Well, in one way to feel like that is to feel bad. In another way, it's a good feeling to have. Because it's a right feeling to have. It's easy for you and me, really, as a preacher and you as a hearer, it's easy for us to look around, see who else is here and think what their experience and what kind of life they've got. And certainly sometimes before you become a Christian, you look at other Christians and the devil will either make you say, these are terrible people really and hypocrites, or else he make you say, oh, these are perfect people and there's not a blemish in them. Either way, you're in trouble. The real thing you need to do, friend, is take your eye off tonight, the person beside you. Forget about them. And for that matter, forget about me. And see yourself here tonight before God, because God is in the sanctuary. I hope and pray and believe that God is here according to promise. See yourself and God dealing with you. See him in his holiness. And see yourself and call yourself the sinner. Are you you aware of that at all? Has that really ever been brought home to you, that you are the sinner? And that it's amazing that God could even think of receiving you. Never mind receiving you. Have mercy upon me, the sinner. Now this isn't a complete picture of the spiritual life of these two people. It's what I said at the beginning. It's a snapshot. That's all. It's a snapshot that the Lord selects of them at prayer in church to reveal what's true in their lives all the time. In other words, if you went to this tax collector's house, you would see a man who was living properly before God, even though people didn't want him to go to church, and it's possible people didn't sometimes even allow him to go to church. Maybe at the synagogue, there'd be people who say, you're not coming in here. But he was looking after his family, if he had a family. He loved and respected his wife, if he indeed had a wife. 
He would joyfully sing praise to God, even though he's here smiting his own breast before God. It's the snapshot that matters. The rest of his life would be true to what this snapshot says. Because the Lord has taken a true snapshot of what this man's life is actually like. It's not all done. He's not always feeling like this. He knows how to sing and to magnify God and to praise him and to thank him. But this is a snapshot that tells us that he knows himself and that he knows his God. That's why he's humble. The tax collector never in one sense moves beyond this prayer and neither is a true Christian. Yes, your prayer life grows and his prayer life grew too. But you don't grow out of this. Um, some people say that you do. You don't. You absolutely don't. We were talking recently, I was talking to Mr. MacDonald about it, but I remember mentioning it in a sermon about faith, a good faith, lively faith, maintains a real sense of the evil of sin along with free justification in Christ. And the healthier your spiritual condition is, the more you have a sight of both these at the same time. And the, the man who wrote that, Bogatsky, he said that that's the hardest exercise of faith, to have a lively sense of both at the same time, that you are a sinner and freely justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I want these two things to live in my heart. I want them to live in my heart all the time. And if I lose either one of them, may the Lord bring it back. Don't lose a real sense of your sin, your need of forgiveness, and don't lose a sense of free justification through faith in Jesus Christ. These two things are precious. It's a wonder that they can coexist in the same soul, but the healthier you are, the more you're aware of that coexistence. So he never moves beyond that prayer. And interestingly, he leaves the temple that day justified. And I suppose one of the points the Lord is making is that if you were in the temple that day, you would not think so. If you were in the temple, you would admire the man that stood near and lifted up his voice and prayed. And you would feel that this man was in a poor condition. Who could only stand at a distance and beat his breast. But aside from all I've said about knowing you're a sinner and being humble and so on, there's the beauty of sincerity with it. I mean, let's say we're in a prayer meeting here or across the road, if that's the right direction, I'm not good at directions. If we're in the prayer meeting, what is it that makes a prayer? Is it the words? No. The words matter, of course. But the heart matters. The sincerity matters. The consciousness of the greatness of God matters. The consciousness of our sin, individual and corporate, matters. And when, when there's that sense of coming before God in, like a child in humility, in spirit and through, that's a prayer meeting. That's a prayer meeting. And this man goes home justified rather than the other. That doesn't mean more justified. It means that he is justified and the other person is not. Now, just in a minute, 
and it is in a minute, we're all going to stand and pray. I'll be leading your prayers, but who's justified as we stand? As we stand, who is it that God accepts? And after the benediction, as we leave this house and go home, who is it who's justified? And who is it who's not? If you're not justified, let me just say in conclusion that there is only way, one way in which your life can be justified. Not by anything you say or do, by seeing your sins in the light of God's holiness, repenting of them, trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ as your righteousness to cleanse you from sin and to clothe you with a new life. Nothing less than that will do and nothing more than that is needed. And it's offered to you tonight. I offer it to you in the name of Christ. Freely take it. Don't be a fool in rejecting it, but be wise and take it. Let us stand and pray. O Lord, teach us to renounce our own righteousness and help us to understand our sinnership, our uncleanness, to recognise your holiness too and that you are righteous when you rebuke our sins. Give us grace to see ourselves as even conceived at the very point of our conception, in guiltiness and in sin, that you may be clear when you judge us. And give us a vision of our Saviour, and Lord, touch our hearts, that we would desire what we once did not, and long for what we once rejected. O oh, to see that the Saviour is offering himself to us tonight as sinners. Humble us, we pray, and show us the way. In the precious name of Christ, O Lord. Amen. <coughs> Let's uh, close our service singing in Psalm 89 and at verse uh, 15. Psalm 89 and verse uh, 15. And the picture in the previous verses is one of God uh, coming towards us with mercy and with truth in the gospel. And here the people are recognizing this. And therefore greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know. In brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. They in thy name shall all the day rejoice exceedingly, and in thy righteousness shall they exalted be on high. And of course this righteousness the Lord gives us is one that places us in his own family, as brethren of Christ. I mean, can't get, you can't actually get any higher than that. 
it's impossible. The glory of their strength doth only stand in thee, and in thy favour shall our horn and power exalted be, for God is our defence, and he to us doth safety bring. He provides our spiritual safety. The Holy One of Israel is also our Almighty King. 15 to 18, let's stand and sing.